0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be interviewing Dr. Noah Nathan about his book titled The Scarce State, Inequality and Political Power in the Hinterland, published by Cambridge University Press. This book, I think, does a whole bunch of really interesting things, Um, helps us understand kind of a particular country. Uh, We'll get into kind of the case studies uh, and why the book focuses there. But really goes quite far beyond that to poke at, maybe even upend some assumptions, I think, that are built into a lot of literatures and maybe even some popular understandings of words like hinterland, uh, words like state, words like political power. Uh, So, Noah, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us all about your book.
1: Thanks for having me, Miranda. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Sure. So I'm an associate professor of political science at MIT, and I study African politics and political economy. And I've been especially active um, doing research in Ghana going back to about 2008. Um, and this is my second book. But in some sense, it's actually sort of my first academic project. because It's a book I have basically wanted to write my entire career in academia. Um, When I was an undergraduate, I got an opportunity to go do field research for a summer in northern Ghana, um, interviewing people from two ethnic groups there, the Konkomba and Dagomba, about a violent ethnic conflict over land ownership that had happened in that region in the early 1990s. Then after that, I went to graduate school, I was studying Ghana, but my dissertation and my first book and a lot of my initial research in my career was about very different things, especially in the country south, far away from the the region where I had been as an undergrad. But in the back of my mind, there was this puzzle from my initial experiences in northern Ghana that stayed with me, and I had always felt that this is something I wanted to come back to when I had the tools and training to actually do a better job of it. And so this has sort of been a passion project of mine for a long time, and I'm really excited that I was finally able to get back to that region of the country, return to these ideas that have been with me my whole career and, and really dig into it um, mm-hmm. and, and come out with this book.
0: Well, with such a kind of, um, I suppose, great enticement there of, of a puzzle, <laughs> uh, can you tell us about the puzzle or the paradox at the heart of the book? Yeah. So I think it's the idea that, that stuck with
1: me from that time and that I wanted to return to in this book is the idea that a state, so, you know, the state can be so weak in all sort of the common ways we define state weakness and political science in a sort of peripheral rural region of a developing country like northern Ghana, and yet clearly be so impactful in making society what it is. And so what I mean by that, I can just give it as, by way of an example. So a, a town where I spent a bunch of time, you know, years and years ago was a town called Saboba in northern Ghana. It's in the sort of far northeastern periphery of the country near its northern border with Togo. This is a really remote place and sort of quintessentially the kind of place where the state is very absent, has neglected, underinvested in public services. There's very limited bureaucratic footprint of the state historically in this region. So it sort of lines up with all the classic ways that she would say this is a place where the state's pretty weak um, in scholarly literature on African politics. And yet in the interviews I had been doing. In people's accounts of the local politics of their area, the state was absolutely like the central actor in explaining their political lives and experiences. And it was a hugely powerful force. There was this violent ethnic conflict there in the early 1990s that the state was a central actor in, um, that the state helps cause, and people were fighting for the state's attention. And so I had to sort of grapple with this idea for a long time chewing over in my head how can you be in a place where the state seems to be off the stage in terms of its like territorial reach and physical footprint, and yet is like, seems to be like a central causal force in politics? And the book is trying to take that idea and say that like, there's actually a resolution to that paradox, and it comes through rethinking what we mean as a field theoretically by saying a state is weak or saying a state is absent. And that's sort of where the book tries to move um, theoretically its its main argument.
0: Mm. Thank you for illustrating that um, for us. And in in terms of that theoretical um, aspect in particular, I mean, there's many things obviously I want to pick up on from what you've told us already, but staying on that kind of theoretical aspect, I think it's worth kind of explicitly highlighting that one of the contributions of this is around the language that we use to even frame this conversation. The book is titled The Scarce State. That's not just to make an alliteration. The economic language of scarcity really is quite helpful here. Can you walk us through sort of what that lets us understand or how that helps us make these theoretical changes?
1: Yeah, I think that's sort of one of the, the core ideas of the book is that this sort of metaphor of scarcity of a good in a marketplace, which in economic sense, if something is scarce in the marketplace, its price increases because there's demand. If it, you know, if de- there's a lot of demand for it, and then we could pick up that metaphor and think about states in a similar way. So. Um, In many sort of peripheral or what I'll call hinterland regions of developing countries, states are pretty absent in terms of their direct physical footprint. They may not do very much governing, much service delivery. Their bureaucratic presence might be quite limited. But that doesn't mean that they're weak. And that's the central argument of the book. It might mean that they're actually scarce in the sort of economic sense. So what I mean by that is um, in a lot of sort of peripheral regions of the developing world, the state often actually is quite resource advantaged relative to the local society it governs. The state often controls allocations of resources that are actually more valuable than what's available in the underdeveloped private market economy in that local region. And the state might do little in terms of like actual action governing the area in terms of the actual goods it delivers. But there might be great demand for it in society precisely because the state controls scarce resources that are highly valued by the local population. And so because the state is scarce, the few things it does do in these regions can have incredibly high value and sort of impact in terms of how they change the society the state is intervening in, just as you could sort of think of the scarcity of a good in a marketplace leading to more demand or more value for that good so that the book builds a theory around the idea that isolated state actions and regions where the state otherwise does very little overall can have especially large long sort of outsized in long term impacts on society by providing sort of these high value windfalls or infusions of resources to narrow sets of beneficiaries in a local society. And then in the absence of the state doing much else allowing those sort of initial allocations of benefits from the state to compound over time become deeply entrenched in societal institutions and local political hierarchies and really transform areas where we actually, you know, you might at a service level say, hey, the state's not really doing very much there, so it can't be having a big impact. But in fact, the fact that it is doing very little means the few things that it does do might actually have an enormous impact on that society. And so that sort of counterintuitive argument is the little puzzle that I try to carry through the whole book in thinking through the political history of this one region of Ghana, northern Ghana, um, over a sort of sweep of over 100 years of history, taking this kernel of this idea that, you know, this is a place that sort of stereotypically the state has not governed very intensively, has not been a sort of major state building. And yet, It's a place that I think is deeply marked by its moments of contact with the state and that we can't even understand in any basic sense the politics of this region without thinking about sort of isolated ways in which the state reshaped it over time. And in doing that, sort of drawing on this case study, the argument of the book is really trying to to then use that as a challenge to sort of deeper notions in political science and in economics and related fields about what we even mean when we say a state is weak in the developing world, if it you know, can be absent, and yet incredibly impactful.
0: Hmm. Before we get into more specifics about northern Ghana and kind of why that's the case study you focus on, um, I want to make sure we're clear on one more term that we've mentioned a few times, but I think is worth poking out further. Can you tell us what you mean by hinterland and how we might think of this term in relation to other sort of subnational regions?
1: Yeah, so I'm really trying to pick, pick up on a, on a body of work in my field um, that's thought about subnational variation in state power and in the presence of the state. And so for political scientists listening, I'm thinking of classic works like Jeffrey Herp's States in Power in Africa or Kathy Boone's Political Topographies of the African State, which are both incredibly elegant books that, that point out that, you know, the state is non-constant across space in a lot of developing countries, including in Africa. And it's, it's true in, in the developed world as well but that there are strategic reasons that states might invest much more intensively in some regions than others. And sort of a big difference, I think in thinking about this subnational variation in the presence of the state is between core and the periphery or between sort of the center and the hinterland. And so um, by the hinterland, I really just mean the sort of economic and political periphery of a country subnationally. So these are regions where that are not central to the fundamental either economic or political interests of the central state regime. So these are the kinds of places where in either Herbst or Boone or at arguments of that flavor, um, where states have historically not invested a lot of resources because it hasn't been a high political priority for them. These are often also geographic peripheries. Hinterlands are in some sense, places that are far away from the capital city, you know, deep into the interior of a country. But I, I don't wanna, I don't prioritize the geographic definition in the book because that's not always the case. There are examples of countries where there are geographically far regions that are actually quite core to a state's economic and political interests. And as a result of that are governed quite intensively over time. So I'm thinking of sort of rural regions that are sort of outside the main frame of reference for like the main power centers in a country, the main economic zones of extraction or crash crop areas. And so these tend to be poor peripheral rural areas. And I think we can learn a lot by sort of going out to the limit of states to sort of these weakest places and still thinking about what does state building look like in places like this and testing sort of broader claims about state building in these sort of marginal spaces. And so that's the focus of the book.
0: And the case study, as you've mentioned, for this is northern Ghana. So can you tell us a little bit about this as a case study and to what extent it's representative of what you've just told us about hinterlands more broadly?
1: Yeah, so Northern Ghana is sort of um, legally speaking, it's it's it used to be called the Northern Upper East and Upper West regions of Ghana. They've recently added recently added more provinces, so that's a little more complicated to explain now. But it's it's ecologically the savanna region. At the nor- as in many West African countries have pretty different environmental zones as you move north away from the Atlantic coast and it's the same in Ghana. So this is the Savannah region in the northern half of the country. It's much less lower population density, much poorer region compared to the much more prosperous and economically vibrant forest belt and coastal regions of the country. And this is a region that has been at sort of at the periphery of stronger states, sort of as a hinterland for most of its history, even deep into the pre-colonial period. So, you know, if you go back to medieval times, this was at sort of the outer periphery of the great Sahelian empires like Ghana, not, no relation to the present country, and Songhai, and, and empires like that. In early modern history, so you get to the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, this was at the periphery or the hinterland of the As- Asanti Empire, which was this dominant state to the south in the forest belt of Ghana today. And then in the colonial period, this was a region that was uh, really colonized, not because it had any economic value to the British Empire, but only, mainly the, the, the priority for colonizing it was to prevent other European powers from colonizing it and this sort of scramble for Africa at the end of the 19th century. And it was a region that was extremely low value to the British colonial state and was an extremely low priority as a result of that. So they governed this area incredibly minimally compared to Southern Ghana or the Southern Gold Coast, as it was called at the time. And so it's sort of the archetypical example of a place where there was sort of incredible governance on the cheap in the colonial period, heavy underinvestment in the provision of public services, in staffing. You know, at times there were 20 British officers governing a territory that's the size of the U.S. state of Virginia um, and just sort of underinvestment. And that neglect and disinterest continued after independence. So Ghana's initial... Post-independence regimes also saw the north mostly as a sort of nuisance and a, a, a sort of an afterthought, and it was heavily underinvested uh, for decades after independence as well. And so, it's a place which, consistently over a time, um, has not been the site of very intensive state occupation or state control or state extraction. And as a result of that, you know, it's a very big um, wealth gap that has emerged historically between Ghana's north and south. So this is the poorer, peripheral part of the country. And so I think it's sort of a quintessential example of one of these zones where states have not sought to intensively build their projector authority and build power and govern the economy and things like that. And so this is the kind of place where I want to study, like, even here, can we see the footprints of the few things the states did do? And are states actually still quite impactful, even in these sort of marginal peripheral regions like northern Ghana? Hmm.
0: So. That all sounds conceptually really interesting right theoretically incredibly helpful but on a practical level words like marginal words like peripheral words like not very many people to govern a space does sort of prick up the historians ears and go hang on but are there sources what kinds of what kinds of information is available to investigate these oh. fascinating questions so can you tell us a bit about the data and methods that you've used for the book
1: yeah so i think i've conceptualized the book as sort of a true mixed methods Project. So for background, I'm a quantitative political scientist and very steeped in that um, tradition. That's my main training. But this was a project that allowed me to broaden my own horizons a little bit and engage much more with qualitative methods as well. And so the book is really a mix of both. So a lot of the book is truly quite quantitative and empirical. So I'm using sort of highly disaggregated census data from multiple points in time, electoral data, new data sets on the biographies of political candidates, survey data, um, Employing sort of causal inference techniques. Uh, at the heart of the book is a natural experiment that I can talk about later that I try to use to get sort of empirical leverage in some of my questions. But the book is also heavily based on years of qualitative fieldwork in the region um, over a long period of time. So, this is interviews with elites and politicians and local actors. And it's a lot of archival research, especially from colonial archives about colonial policy in the region. But actually a core piece of the qualitative data collection that for me was the most enjoyable part of working on this book, and, and I really became a central piece of the, of the book is that I did oral history interviews and a carefully selected a set of 12 rural villages, rural communities to get, especially from older people in these communities who could sort of talk through the oral history and, and, and popular narratives that have been passed down within the collective memory of that community about their experiences of interactions with the state going back into the colonial period and trying to get people's own narratives of how the state has transformed their communities over time. And, and I, something I really tried to do in the book is bring those voices into the pages and surround the sort of empirical quantitative analysis with these oral history interviews. And a lot of the ideas that sort of at the heart of the book's argument and theory are basically, in some sense, repeating back exactly what respondents in these communities told me had happened to them and sort of trying to systematically go test those claims um, with, with with you know quantitative data. So it's, it's a mix of qualitative and quantitative work in that sense.
0: A very interesting mix. Um, so thank you for telling us a bit about that. Um, I'd like to ask you about the interventions the state has made in northern Ghana, uh, which Kind Of, despite the fact of the long time period and the many different methods you're using, it was really interesting to read that essentially it's three interventions. That, that's kind of the sum total of what we're talking about.
1: So, well, there's, more, there's more than that that happened. But, um, I, so I'm, I'm it's a simplifying device, but, um, so mm. obviously the state's doing some things over time in this region. Mm-hmm. And I highlight that there's sort of three big actions the state mm-hmm. took that I think we can point to, they're not the only actions, but we can point to as having particularly important effects. And so, again, as I said, this is a place where the state historically has has underinvested and not done nearly as much as it's done elsewhere. But there are sort of three basic tasks that almost any state tries to do, which is things like delegating authority to local actors, providing minimal public services, and also just like defending the rule of law in the economic marketplace, so things like rec- creating legal regimes around property rights, for example. And the state does all of these things in northern Ghana, as most states do everywhere in the world. And so I focus on specific instances of those sort of three state actions, and I think about how these sort of minimal... and and. Uh, interventions in society have had long-term effects over time. And three actions I focus on are three things that the states did actually all as sort of exigencies of state weakness. Like the state was trying to do these things precisely to not have to do more, to make it easier to leave this region alone. And yet in the act of doing those things, I think the argument of the book is they, they changed the region quite substantially. So the three ideas are first that the very outset of the colonial period, there was an imperative to stand up local intermediaries who could govern local areas on the state's behalf, especially given that the British devoted incredibly limited staffing to this region. So they didn't have a lot of British officials running around to govern. So they wanted to do indirect rule. And in other parts of of colonial Africa. That meant um, empowering traditional chiefs to govern sort of as the local intermediary of the colonial state. But an interesting feature about this region is that about two-thirds of the population came from ethnic groups that were what anthropologists call acephalus prior to colonial rule. That is, they were not centralized states that had pre-existing authority figures like chiefs that could be deputized as agents through indirect rule. And so the British from as early as 1902 set about in some of these groups, inventing institutions of traditional insufficiency from scratch, basically picking up this idea that, and it's a very racist, you know, sort of idea steeped in sort of the colonial thinking of the time that, you know, Africans are in tribes and they have chiefs. And that was obviously true in some places, but it was not true in, in, in many of the communities in this region. And they picked up those institutions and just plopped them down on them and and nominated people as chiefs and empowered them with this authority that had not previously existed. So that was the first big intervention. And then that carries through and those chiefs remain powerful actors, uh, gradually become powerful and remain important political actors in this region over time. The second action is decades later and very belatedly compared to other parts of of British colonies, they do sort of begrudgingly at the end of the colonial period start building out a basic uh, public education infrastructure. So building public schools Um, And that starts picking up, especially in the 1940s. And then the third action that I focus on is in the 1970s, the late 1970s, the post independence state engages in a legal land reform effort where they basically devolve land ownership in northern Ghana from the state back to uh, local actors, and in this case, to the chiefs that had been stood up by the colonial state decades earlier. And that was really a move by the central state to sort of uh, wash its hands of the land problems of the north and saying, we don't want to have to actively manage land. But in that process of giving out land ownership back to communities, they created um, a whole host of changes in society that really, really have shaped the politics of the region going forward. So those are the three interventions that sort of are sort of the empirical treatments, so to speak, in the book that I then try to think of the effects, the effects of those interventions on society.
0: Mm. Can we talk a bit about some of those effects, um, perhaps with the first two interventions most f- in focus, um, to think about differences and especially inequalities between communities as a result of these interventions?
1: Yeah. So one of the big the big um, empirical focuses of the book is trying to explain the origins of socioeconomic inequality and then the implications of that for political inequality as well. And what I mean by political inequality is inequality and access to political power, especially in the form of elite capture or what some people might call dynastic politics, where the same families dominate political power over time. And so. what I try to do is sort of think about, so this is a region where a lot of these acephalous ethnic groups that I just mentioned were quite flat economically at the outset of the colonial period. There wasn't a lot of economic differentiation. There was a little bit, but not much in terms of like class hierarchies within um, rural communities because these were very poor underdeveloped areas um, where there just wasn't a lot of stratification and wealth. And then into this sort of flat acephalous society, you have this initial intervention where the British colonial state shows up and pretty arbitrarily selects certain families to be the lineage from which the chief of that community will be drawn. This is often hereditary office. And they imbue these chiefs with authority as the local agent of the state. And this is a, and, and in the book I, I document, it's actually a pretty arbitrary process, which families get picked to be anointed as sort of the hereditary lineage. Um, there's a lot of oral history work and work on that I draw on from other historians suggest that it was often fundamentally just like deeply arbitrary, like the family that was most welcoming to the British district commissioner when he first showed up in the village happens to be the one that then gets picked. Or um, in some in one village in which I did uh, oral history interviews, the lore in that village is that a family of a slave, a slave was actually picked as the first chief. So from the very bottom of what social hierarchy existed in the community, because he had been particularly cooperative with the British district commissioner. And then his lineage and his family is suddenly elevated to the top of the community and made into the chief. Um, so that's sort of this first intervention. And the thing is, they 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 stood up these sort of invented chiefs at the beginning of the 20th century, but the state was quite distant, and these chiefs did not actually have very much substantive authority at the beginning of colonial rule. On paper, this person is anointed as the chief of this community. Does that actually change how power is allocated at the community level in the short term? Actually, I think it didn't. Um, but very gradually, over the course of the rest of the colonial state, uh, colonial period, The colonial state starts gradually increasing the tasks and the rights and the responsibilities of these chiefs. And because they have a link to colonial officials, they are the go-between to the sort of distant colonial official who has these resources and has this power, they start to gradually amass respect and authority in their communities. But it also puts them as a position, as a middleman, to get early access to benefits that might come through the colonial state later on. The colonial state in northern Ghana does incredibly little public service provision, just like shockingly little public service provision in terms of like building sort of basic amenities that we would think a state provides to its citizens. But sort of in the period leading into World War II and then especially in the years immediately afterwards, they start very belatedly building out the public education system, um, standing up uh, especially uh, primary schools and then a small set of secondary schools. And as they do that, um, the British need to recruit students for these schools. And at first, a lot of communities are, are deeply, and I think rightly, skeptical of, of why they should send children to school. This is the first introduction of formal Western education to the region. Um, people, and a lot of these schools are boarding schools initially. People don't want to lose their children. And send them will have the you know the Europeans take them away to do who knows what with them. And so, there's an incredible amount of resistance to sending your kids to school initially. But the chiefs, as sort of employees of the colonial state, Colonial state officials were able to lean on them and say, hey, as one of your responsibilities in return for you know the salary we're giving you, you need to send round up children for us for these schools. And so what ends up happening, and I have a lot of examples of this in the book, is they start rounding up their own children or children from their own extended families. And so then what happens is that early access to the education system grafts onto the sort of arbitrary selection of some families over others into being The sort of official chiefs of the villages in which those families then get their kids into school first they become in the local parlance the pioneers in the education system this turns out to be an incredibly valuable windfall for these children because it turns out that by the mid-20th century you know formal education is incredibly scarce in northern ghana there's only you know i think in independence there were three university graduates total from this region and so to get into the most valuable jobs in the sort of initial independence era economy, which were civil service jobs in the state, you needed education. You need to be literate English. Um, and there's an incredibly small group of people in northern Ghana at that time who were. And they almost heavily disproportionately come from the families of these chiefs selected by the state decades earlier. And what this creates, I argue, and I sort of try to meticulously show in the book empirically, is this creates economic stratification where these certain families get much earlier head start and in entry into the far more lucrative formal sector economy while everyone else is still held back in subs- largely in subsistence agriculture or, or very low-grade cash crop agriculture, and you start getting inequality. And So what I'm able to show is that there are, to this day, much more economic inequality within villages where these chiefs were invented and certain families got this initial access to education as head start in access to education over everyone else, Then in otherwise similar communities where this process didn't happen and sort of trace that through to think about sort of how these sort of early interventions of a state, like building a small number of primary schools, appointing some families as these pretty powerless, at least initially, intermediaries, nonetheless, um, created these sort of windfalls of economic advantages on some families over others and created this sort of pretty significant uh, class inequality that now exists in northern Ghana and the level of inequality is quite striking now and I think it's partly is that this is compounded over time with these families that got this head start then like through the generations and I try to document this in the book, um, getting further, pulling further and further ahead from people from their same home areas who didn't get set out on this trajectory of having early access to human capital into the formal sector. So that's sort of the, the argument about economic inequality and then I carry that through to think about political inequality as well, and the argument there is that there's a great deal of dynastic politics in Northern Ghana, where small sets of families um, seem to be dominating political power over long periods of time. And I'm able to show that um, by like li- like literally linking, these are actually the exact same families in the story I just talked about. So these families that were the families of the early colonial chiefs that got invented by the colonial state, then get head start and access to education, and then as a result of that, are in a position to compete more effectively for political power in the contemporary period. And so, for example, um, I show in the book that about 50 percent, I think the exact number is like 46 percent, I'd have to look it up. It's about 50 percent of the MPs, members of parliament representing this region in parliament today are from the specific families of the chiefs who were appointed in the you know, first two decades of the 20th century um, in these in these villages. And I'm able to show that this is through the sort of compounding effects of having contact to this scarce state that that, that can deliver these resources over time and has reshaped the politics of these areas. So that was a very long answer to your question, but trying to walk through several chapters there of sort of mm. the main argument about, um, about the effects these interventions
0: can have. Well, and I think it's a good moment to remind listeners um, that that was, as you said, kind of an incredibly <laughs> concise summary. Um, the book has so many more details. So listeners, if you're going, wait, I want to know more <laughs> about this, um, please pick up the book because uh, the details are quite fascinating. But I am going to ask you, Noah, to continue on this very concise highlights tour of all of sure. your arguments. Um, you've just told us some really quite direct ways uh, that there are economic and political effects from these interventions. Can you tell us a bit about some of the indirect ways that these interventions um, can change incentives for communities?
1: Yeah, so I this is the sort of other half of the argument in the book. And this part was particularly fun for me to work on um, because it sort of pushed beyond what I had known or expected to, to, to find um, when I set out on the project, which is that Um, The argument is, you know, like states can, by controlling these resources that are scarce in society, can have big effects in society by giving those resources out to it, like in the example of building a school. But also the fact that the state is sort of this latent reserve of resources that people really demand and want, I argue, can cause people to change their own societal institutions to try to position themselves to be better able to lobby for and gain access to state resources. And the way that I sort of show this argument is through a case study of an ethnic group called the Konkomba, which I mentioned at the beginning, which was an ethnic group that was historically acephalous, that did not have institutions of traditional chiefancy or centralized political leadership higher than sort of the family lineage group. And unlike some other groups in northern Ghana, this was a group that the colonial state basically left alone and did not um, invent these traditional chiefs left with their existing governance system. And this is a group that, in seeing its disadvantages over time, by the fact that it does not have access to chiefs, means that it's not legible to the state. Um, it's sort of, I don't know if people are familiar with the famous work of the political scientist Jim Scott on legibility and how states try to see their populations. But these were groups of people who, by virtue of not having traditional chiefs, because traditional chiefs were this major intermediary through which the state interacted with the population, were being left out. Of a lot of benefits and then especially after this land reform that happens in 1979 when land ownership is devolved from the state to traditional chiefs groups that did not have traditional chiefs like the concoma now suddenly legally could not own the land that they had been farming for generations and this put them in a very precarious legal position and their response was to say well if the legal regime says that you need chiefs you need institutions of traditional chieftaincy to get access to state resources like recognition of your land rights, why don't we invent chiefs for ourselves? And so very consciously, starting in the early 1980s and then picking up especially in the 1990s into the 21st century, this ethnic group, which is a very large ethnic group, the second largest ethnic group in northern Ghana, it's about 500,000 people, starts inventing so-called traditional institutions essentially out of whole cloth. Um, engaging in what anthropologists would call processes of bricolage or or syncretic institution building, where they are grabbing at sort of bits and pieces of cultural ideas from neighboring ethnic groups, parts of the Cucumba tradition, and assembling these shards into this sort of new tapestry, this new set of institutions, and then claiming, hey, look, we have traditional leadership too, and trying to invent these institutions to try to attract the attention of the state and change the legal status of their group. And so the fifth chapter of the book is this very qualitative case study of how this process is unfolded over time. And to me, what's really interesting about it is that it's showing that, like, you know, we tend to think about, like, traditional governance as being something that's pre-modern or, or from before as opposed to the modern. But in this case, the traditional is extremely insanely modern like extremely modern it's invented in the 21st century um, and there's this work by historians famous sort of body of uh, line of inquiry by historians like Terence Ranger and Eric Hobsbawm on sort of the invention of tradition and I very much engage with that work and show that this is sort of a process that's still completely going on today and it's going on in response to the fact that the state is scarce it has resources that rural communities want and rural communities are being ingenious and creative in changing their institutional arrangements to try to get access to them. And so that's um, a big part of this. And 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 using the, the reference to Jim Scott that I mentioned is that he makes this argument that, you know, the state wants to make society legible so it can govern effectively. And society he argues often doesn't want to be legible and doesn't want to be seen by the state because when the state sees you, they come take things from you. They have taxes or they could repress you. And his whole sort of anarchist take on, on state development is one of the s- societies in rural areas in the rural periphery trying to resist the penetration of the state, And I actually think you might have the logic backwards for a lot of Hitler, hinterland regions. And I argue that, in fact, societies like the concumba desperately want to be seen by the state so that they'll be eligible to get benefits from it. And I borrow that term from an anthropologist named Andrew Walker, who says people want to be legible so they can be eligible to get benefits from the state. And they might go to great lengths to try to like make themselves be seen. So in addition to doing things like inventing traditional chiefancy. Another example that comes up in this chapter is that these ethnic groups literally um, that feel like they're being neglected and passed over and access to state resources, literally uh, physically torn down their villages and picked up all their homes and moved them to the side of the nearest road and rebuilt the village over again. So that when government vehicles are driving by, they'll see the village and know that it's there. And then they can you know, have better claims to access to state services. And so sort sure, of trying to pull up this idea that like society changes also as a result of, you know, the state has things that people want, those things are scarce in society. And so people indirectly, endogenously sort of change themselves to try to get, position themselves to get more access to it. So that's sort of the other big half of the argument in the book.
0: And such an evocative example, right? That one example um, by itself really kind of makes that point and does um, question a lot of the kind of received logic that uh, clearly we we should be questioning. So thank you for taking us through that part of the argument. Um, Can I ask about another aspect of the book, uh, which is, I think perhaps to me at least, unlike what we've talked about so far, that kind of so clearly takes something we think we know and goes, hang on a second. I actually found this next section of the book almost to look at something that we maybe don't look at that often or kind of look at in strange ways that maybe are talking past or over the issue without really looking at it kind of square on. Um, And what I'm talking about is non-state communal violence, which as someone Mm. who studies civil wars and knows how many problems we still have defining such a thing, uh, can see why there's some kind of things to be sorted out here. So can you talk to us about the section in the book that looks at non-state communal violence and how we can understand this in the context of what you've already been telling us about state action and incentives?
1: Yeah, so... Northern Ghana is, is, you know, Ghana is among the most peaceful countries in sub-Saharan Africa, has been very blessed not to have a civil war or a major insurgency in its history. And yet, you know, if there's one part of the country where that sort of peaceful reputation that Ghana very rightfully deserves does not hold so well, it's, it's northern Ghana, which has actually been a site of some pretty substantial violence in its history. But this violence has not, as I mentioned, has not been a civil war. It has not been violence directed at trying to conquer the state and you know, replace the state. It's taken the form of non state communal violence, which I definitely agree with you gets less overall attention in the literature on political violence, though depending on which data set you use and which measures you believe, some argue is actually now the more common type of violent event in sub-Saharan Africa is communal violence, so violence of of, of local groups against each other rather than targeted at the center. And so there's been some pretty substantial amounts of violence in northern Ghana, especially, as I mentioned, in the early 1990s where there was one conflict in which, by some estimates, as many as 15,000 people were killed. Um, And so in the final empirical chapter of the book, I try to sort of think about, so why has this region been so violent? And in one sense, that northern Ghana would be the one part of Ghana where there's been a lot of, of, of non-state violence is completely exactly what we would expect. Um, there's very famous arguments in the political violence literature that suggests that in places where the state is weak, where the state doesn't have capacity to police, um, violence is more likely to bu- bubble up because the sort of opportunity cost of violence are lower because these are places where you can organize, you know, a violent militia outside the watchful eye of the state where the state is absent. And so in one sense, like, oh, of course, this would be the area where, where are the violence and would happen. And so violence is happening as a function of, of the state not being there to prevent it. But when I unpack and sort of dig into uh, case study narratives of almost all the violent conflicts that have happened in this region, that keeps not being the explanation. And in fact, it seems like violence is happening precisely because the state is intervening in this region, and causing major grievances that people are then fighting over, and um, the state's absence just does not work as an explanation for why this is not happening. And in fact, in some cases, it seems like the state might be actively involved in instigating the violence for political reasons to try to sort of pit divide and rule strategies in elections, for example, to pit one group against the other and win votes, things like that. Um, and it seems like the state does have the capacity to have prevented violence, but is often choosing not to for political expediency. And so. Why I think a lot of this violence is happening is that it's fundamentally about what I've just been talking about, which is that it's about the state has scarce resources and people want access to those resources. And a lot of the conflicts at their heart are fights over who is going to get the recognition and the attention of the state and therefore get windfalls from the state. So about half of the violent conflicts are issues of chieftaincy secession. So often intra-ethnic within ethnic group conflicts over who gets to secede to these offices under the logic that only by getting these offices can you get access to these windfalls that generate all this economic inequality that I talked about. And other violence is related to the discussion about land ownership, and this is the, the major conflict in 1994 was related to this. Where ethnic groups that did not have legal access to chiefancy because in the state size they were officially acephalous and did not have traditional chiefs could not under this new legal regime legally own land, so their land was given in a sect legally to ethnic groups that had chiefs that were nearby. And so they start going out of their way to try to assert themselves, and like as part of this process of inventing their own chiefs, they start fighting to basically assert their rights to their land. And it's not violence directed at the state. Even though the state's the one that like created the problem, it's violence directed at the other ethnic groups of the chief who are trying to exercise their newfound rights over this land. And so I'm able to sort of walk through the narrative of political violence in this region over time and suggest that, you know, at first blush, we might think like there's a lot of violence in the hinterland because the state isn't there to stop it um, and try to show case by case that actually in a lot of cases the state's the one who starts it um, and that the violence is about sort of competition over the scarcity of state resources. And in that sense, state absence leads to violence, but it's sort of a different logic than the standard account.
0: Mm. Um, but a really interesting one to kind of put all these pieces together. Um, and who knows, may- maybe that's something political violence needs to look more at is the economics of yeah. everything, you know, bring, bring these two questions together rather than ask them separately. Can I ask you to tell us, um, however, about the part of your book that kind of moves away from Northern Ghana. Um, I know we've gotten kind of quite deeply embedded in it, but uh, to move a bit beyond it, I asked at the beginning kind of the extent to which this case study helps us think about hinterlands more broadly. Coming back to that now, can you tell us about the shadow cases you looked at and what they added to this investigation?
1: Yeah. And there's definitely a tension in any book like this between going deep in one case and then trying to claim, sort of external validity beyond it. And I, I really do hope that the theory in this book, and tra- believe that the theory in this book travels quite far. And it's sort of a conscious choice that, you know, the word Ghana or the word Africa does not appear in the title of the book, because I think this is a more generalized theory of hinterlands. And I'm just using Northern Ghana as a case to demonstrate some of these ideas. But so in a the, in the final part of the book, I try to sort of prove what I just said. And by zooming out and doing um, shorter case studies of other regions, Where I think very similar dynamics can be found, but also some important differences. And so I focus try to show the the scope of how far I think this argument travels. I pick a region from a a case from Latin America and a case from Southeast Asia, so Peru and the Philippines. And I think of these as cases that in their um, rural Peru and the rural Philippines in their early modern history, especially in their colonial and early early colonial history, um, actually quite closely mirror a lot of the theoretical dynamics I talk about in Northern Ghana. But there are also cases that had sort of big changes in key scope conditions over time, and then you got different outcomes as a result of that. So I use these both as cases to sort of show that this argument, like the broad strokes of this argument, travels beyond this one case, but also as sort of thought experiments to think about if structural conditions in Northern Ghana changed, what would change in the outcome variables in the book? Um, and so it's a little complicated, the argument for the cases. I, I, maybe it won't bog down the, the podcast with all the details about Peru and the Philippines. But just to say that, like, um, I think, you know, I tried very hard to think about, like, this not being just a Ghana-specific story, even though obviously it goes quite deep into Ghana. And it was fun to really engage with a lot of historical scholarship on these other cases. And it just, the degree of parallels to me was was quite significant. And I think a sort of broader point here is, as someone who identifies as an Africanist in terms of my main scholarly identity, I think in a lot of fields in the social sciences we get quite siloed into our regional fields of expertise, and we don't realize how similar um, so many of these dynamics are across. Like. The things that I was reading about the Philippines, you just changed some of the place names and the people names, and you told me this was an African country, I would have believed you. You know, I just like really the dynamics are fundamentally quite similar and I think that, that this was a fun exercise at the end of the book in um in trying to, to just show the external validity beyond the case that I'm most familiar with.
0: Hmm. That's interesting to see kind of just how similar it is to someone who, in your case, is so steeped in one case that you are like, wait a second. Um, That's always very interesting to hear about. We've been talking throughout this about kind of the implications um, of this book and especially sort of the things that we might need to rethink or take another look at um, based off of this. But is there anything further you'd like to say about kind of the implications from this research?
1: Um, I think I covered most of that. I would just say that like, I think one of the the core ideas that I try to carry through the whole book and that I hope people take away from it is that when we say a developing country has a weak state, that's actually an incredibly ambiguous and unhelpful and almost analytically useless um, statement because that could mean many different things and the different things it could mean have totally different implications for what politics in these regions look like. And so one of the core tasks of the book is to try to unpack what do we mean we actually say a state is weak and say like, okay, it's weak in some dimensions, but it's not in others. And it's also not necessarily, um, weakness isn't necessarily a permanent state, but it's something that's very dynamic and endogenous to local politics. I'm not the only person making that point, but trying to really pull out that idea. And so to sort of as a broader rumination and an interrogation of sort of the idea that, yes, you know, these states don't have all the bureaucratic capacity of like Western European countries. Like that's an uncontestable and obviously true claim. And yet they're capable of doing quite major things to their societies. And when we just collapse that all into weak states, strong states, like if you think of, you know, popular books like why nations fail by Asimoglu and Robinson, who are wonderful scholars, but just using them as an example, like, you know, I think that sort of like creates this false binary that, uh, really, um, covers up and does not actually elucidate much of the politics of these regions. And like I, I want to interrogate much further what we really mean when I say a state is weak. And I think that's what the book is trying to do in its, in its biggest, broadest sense. Um, and so I hope if people engage after listening to this podcast, that's, that's one of the takeaways they try to dig into.
0: Mm. That's a great takeaway. And I think it would be hard to read the book and not do that. (laughs) But I'm sure listeners will make up their own minds. Um, I do have one final question, if you don't mind. You mentioned this as being your second book, but perhaps in some ways kind of the first project. Is there anything you might be working on now that this is done?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm pivoting to the third big project, which is completely different. So I'm I, I, I joked in a talk once that I'm going as far away as you possibly can and still being in the same country with this new work. So um, my first book was about urban politics. And then I pivoted for a couple of years and, and wrote this book that we've just been talking about, which is about like remote rural politics. And now I'm swinging back and I'm going back to the urban. So I'm doing a, a big project on um, sort of extending ideas in my earlier work on urban politics. But now trying to think about, so Africa, you know, is one of the fastest urbanizing regions in the world as really dynamic cities. And I think something that is a key part of urbanization and that I think really affects urban politics but gets very, very little attention in the political science literature is not just thinking about cities as places where people agglomerate, as, as places with lots of people, but cities as sort of physical material things, as built environments as architectures and designs that structure how those people who are in cities interact in space. And so my new research agenda that I've been having a lot of fun with since this book was sent off to the press is is trying to bring the consideration of the built environment, of architecture, of urban design, into how we as quantitative empirical political scientists think about urban politics in developing countries and in African cities. Um, And so I have a series of projects taking different slices at that looking at things like the effects of street layouts on social network formation. And I'm starting a new project on residential architecture and how it affects cooperation, interethnic cooperation among people who are strangers, but live close to each other and things like that. And trying to sort of get a a new slice into studying urban areas. So I I guess I spent a lot of time for this book in some pretty remote, uh, rural places, and I've retreated um, to the city and I'm, 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 I'm studying a very different locale, but a lot of the themes actually carry over in counterintuitive ways, especially with these engagements with ideas like the concept of legibility from the work of Scott and sort of related concepts about state building are also central to this project on built environments, um, even as it's taking a pretty different direction. But So that's a little off topic, but that is what yeah. I'm working on now if anyone's interested. And in, you can go to my website and see some of the work that's already out.
0: Well, that sounds very cool. So thank you for giving us that little, I suppose, sneak preview of the bits that haven't been done yet. Um, But also, of course, as you said, some of it is already out. Um, And of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Scarce State, Inequality and Political Power in the Hinterland, published by Cambridge University Press. Noah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Miranda, for having me. It was really nice to talk with you today.